What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. That's why we have to use and learn from anything that happens. We have to learn from the good, from the bad, from the happiness, from the tragedy. We have to learn. We have to use it all. To use it all. You're so deep, Lenny. I never knew that you were so deep. I gotta remember to use that line the next time I've no idea what you're talking about, Adam. <laughs> Might come in handy this week, you never know. That was Charles Grodin and Jeannie Berlin as newlyweds Lenny and Lila in 1972's The Heartbreak Kid, Elaine May's biggest hit as a director and the movie that made Grodin a star. The Heartbreak Kid is the second film in our Elaine May marathon. We've got that review, plus the top five films of 1972, and much more. 1972 newlyweds Lenny and Lila or Connie and Carlo? Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is once again presented by our friends at MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Right now, Josh, they've got an exclusive four-day, two-feature, and five-short film series bringing its audience films directly from The Friends with Benefits, an anthology of four new American filmmakers series programmed by New York's Film Society of Lincoln Center. These uncompromising young visionaries share a penchant for provocation, a taste for transgression, and a host of strategies and obsessions all their own. Those sound fascinating, as does this potential future film spotting marathon topic. Peter Greenaway, they've got a retrospective of his work going on right now. That would be a good idea. I think I've only seen one of his films. Mubi calls Greenaway one of modern cinema's great provocateurs. He took the austere British drama and injected it with live wire kink. Among the films Mubi has playing are The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, and also The Draughtsman's Contract. Is The Cook... The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, the film of his that you've seen? It is. Yeah, me as well. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there are always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. You can also use their mobile app to download the films to watch offline. Our listeners can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. We did want to take a moment off the top here to thank Tasha Robinson and Michael Phillips for filling in for us last week. It says in my notes that they very capably took over the show last week. I wish I could say that for sure, but tragically haven't listened to the show yet because they reviewed Deadpool. They reviewed The Witch was the main review. And I haven't seen either movie yet, so I don't want to have them ruin that experience for me. They were great. I listened to it not until I had re-seen The Witch and written my review. I want okay. to get that out of the way. Their top five was a lot of fun. We haven't done that, have we? The no. top five baffling Oscar nominees? No, not except for maybe a little bit of poll commentary right. sometimes after the Oscar nominations are announced. Let's do that next year because but... it, it was a good one and got a chance to bring up some choices they would have made mm-hmm. and talk about some more positive aspects of the last year in film. So maybe we should put that in our pockets for next year. As I said, didn't listen, but I looked at our top five page to see what they talked about, really hoping that Michael would be on my side. And there he is ripping on my boy Fassbender for getting nominated for Steve Jobs, which I could go either way on that nomination. But 
Christian Bale getting nominated for The Big Short, one of his top five baffling Oscar nominations. Michael's a smart man. What can I say? I heard he was also ripping on The Big Short, my favorite movie of the year, just in terms of the Best Picture nomination. He redeemed himself, though, with that number one. The Revenant getting a best picture. He had to take a swipe at The Revenant, though I was most upset. You'll hear this, too. Tasha complained about the dresses in Cinderella. See, I saw that and I didn't think there was any way that could be true. It's true. I mean, she one of the highlights of the film. Exactly. Thankfully, she did give proper attention to Kate Blanchett's outfits, which we both talked about. And they were unique. It was a different sort of costume design, Mm -hmm. but she did not like the traditional dresses. But I'm sorry. Lily James' blue dress. They knocked that blue dress out of the park. (laughs) That's the performance of the year. I don't know what Tasha's talking about. Well, this week, our Elaine May Marathon continues with 1972's Heartbreak Kid, plus our top five favorite films from that movie year. There were some good ones, a very good Woody Allen film that didn't quite make the cut for me, a classic from Bergman that didn't make the cut for me, and one of Hitchcock's last efforts possibly in the mix as well. There's also that little mob movie from Francis Ford Coppola you might have heard of, Title Escapes Me, that top five and more later in the show. But first, our review of The Heartbreak Kid, where the honeymoon is over almost before it begins. It's just plain, old-fashioned, corny lingo, sir. Uh, I have fallen head over heels with your Kelly here. Uh, It just, you know, it didn't take me long to make up my mind one Good luck did it, actually. I said you're lying in my spot. Oh, you are this terrific girl! You are this terrific <laughs> Now, there is a slight complication. Um, I happen to be a newlywed. I have seen her around the pool. Lenny! She's a nice girl, but just uh, not, not, not really my type. Part of the trailer there for Elaine May's second film as a director, and appropriately, the second film in our May marathon, The Heartbreak Kid. A rare case, Josh, where the folks cutting the trailer perfectly bundled the movie they were selling. That almost never happens anymore. They built the whole preview around a scene that is arguably the funniest scene in the whole movie. And is one where the protagonist also sums up the predicament that gives us our plot. As you heard, Lenny, played by Charles Grodin, falls hard for Sybil Shepard's all-American beauty Kelly while on his honeymoon with Jeannie Berlin's Lila, she of the shiver-inducing egg salad eating and desperate need to be reassured that the sex she and her husband are finally having is indeed, Josh, wonderful. We got earlier in the week a tweet from a longtime listener, member of our Film Spotting Advisory Board, a very talented critic as well, Melissa Taminga. She is at One April Day on Twitter. She retweeted Jonathan Rosenbaum, former Chicago reader, critic, saying, On Elaine May, Jonathan Rosenbaum, excellent companion reading for the marathon with Film Spotting. And it is true that Rosenbaum just about a week ago published an article on his website, republished an article that he had originally written in 1997 called The Mysterious Elaine May Hiding in Plain Sight. He notes this, and I caught a few other comments about the Heartbreak Kid preparing for this show, and there were a lot of comparisons to The Graduate, the seminal film from May's former comedy partner, Mike Nichols. Rosenbaum wrote this about The Heartbreak Kid. It's a complex response to The Graduate, directed by Nichols. Both movies chart the hero's ditching of a dark, overpowering woman, Anne Bancroft, Jeannie Berlin, for an inaccessible wasp princess, Catherine Ross, Sybil Shepard, whom he monomaniacally follows all the way to the university she's attending. We could certainly start by talking about The Heartbreak Kid in relation to The Graduate, but I think a more fruitful jumping-off point might be something Rosenbaum suggests near the end of his essay. 
Comparing Kid to May's directing debut, A New Leaf, which we considered a few weeks ago, Rosenbaum said this, Both comedies are striking in the way they set up an uneasy audience identification with a self-absorbed hero bent on ditching his unsuspecting newlywed wife, rubbing our noses in everything about her that he finds disgusting and abhorrent while creating a surprising amount of empathy and compassion for her as well. It's a volatile emotional mixture, and if either movie had been directed by a man— charges of misogyny would have seemed almost obligatory. Hmm. That uneasy audience identification was at the core of our enjoyment of A New Leaf, a movie where we find ourselves inexplicably rooting for love between a rich, clumsy botanist played by May herself and the selfish bastard played by Walter Matthau, who's concocting plans to kill her so he can get her money. Producing complexly contradictory feelings towards her characters, as contradictory as a misogynistic portrayal of women in two movies directed by a woman— is clearly part of May's mission. Did she, Josh, accomplish her mission here as entertainingly and as potently as she did in A New Leaf? This is really entertaining. It's uh, hysterical in the same way, uh, maybe a little bit more of a slow burn even in terms of how it works with the comedy. It reminded mm-hmm. me a lot of the sketches that I've seen on YouTube with her and Nichols where the laughs come from the pauses so much and the waiting of what's going to happen during these conversations. So it, it has those qualities. I liked it, you know, just about as much. Maybe I liked A New Leaf a little bit better. That might simply have to do with me choosing Walter Matthau over Charles Grodin. Yeah, we'll <laughs> I mean, probably get there. It, it could be as simple as that. Though Grodin's very funny here. And it's it, it's quite amusing to think of someone like that even being a star. I mean, talk about how differently a movie like this would play today with that trailer. They mm-hmm. would never make a trailer like that no. uh, today. And it would never work with audiences today. And I don't – can you see someone like Grodin becoming a star today? I mean, no. I guess maybe Jason Segel is someone similar. But um, I really did like Grodin here. And as far as this – complex relationship we have with the characters. I think it's because here, even more so than in The New Leaf, this isn't Lenny's story. It isn't really about, even though it follows what happens to him and the choices Mm -hmm. he makes, it's about the war of the sexes. It's about the tension that's inherent between two people who have proclaimed a sort of commitment to each other and now are trying to live within that reality and the impossibilities of that reality and how there are comic foils in that. And I think it's really interesting, this idea of what would have happened if this film had been directed as it was by a man, what sort of charges might have have had against it. Mm -hmm. I can see that possibly happening. But I think we also have to remember that this is written by Neil Simon. Yeah. And I think that he brings a a strong voice to this. What fascinated me about The Heartbreak Kid is that those voices are maybe not where we would expect if we just looked at the filmmakers' genders. I almost feel like the narrative, which came from Simon essentially, is really plain Lenny to be the fool here Mm -hmm. and setting him up as the clown, whereas the direction, which is coming from May, zeroes in a little bit more, though she doesn't get quite as much screen time, on Berlin's Lila and sends her up as this cloying wife stereotype. Now, Rosenbaum is right when he says it's also an empathetic portrayal, and I think we should get into that, too, because she's so good in this film. But that just goes to show you how complicated and unexpected this movie is when you think about where the perspectives are coming from behind the camera and how they look in front of the camera. And again, I think it just... It leaves us with a movie where no side is unscathed, yeah. and that makes for a great experience. Yeah, you're absolutely right on everything you said, and I think I'm with you in terms of 
our enjoyment of this movie and also enjoying it maybe a little bit less than A New Leaf. And I do think Mathau probably had a lot to do with that. I'll get into maybe at least one or two other reasons why here in a minute. But in terms of what I did love about this movie, you know me. I'm the guy who can't watch award ceremonies because they make me uncomfortable. Like, I don't watch the Oscars. I don't watch the Golden Globes. There's something about those interactions and the awkwardness of them that I just find unbearable. And I'm sure that the movie Michael and Tasha talked about last week, The Witch, is terrifying. But I guarantee you, Josh, that I will spend less time watching The Witch with my hands in front of my eyes than I did The Heartbreak Kid. I am not exaggerating. Groden is so consistently awkward and annoying and delusional. Delusional, And yeah. May so consistently <laughs> stretches out the most awkward yes. and annoying and delusional sequences and frames them in such a way that we're just stuck observing like one of the dinner guests who can't escape that I truly did spend about half this film just listening to it because it got to a point where I knew I had to consume it. I had to take in the experience in order to sit here and talk about it, but I couldn't watch. I couldn't watch Groden continue to hang himself the way he does. And there are three that's key sequences. That's the dinner scene, though. Yeah, I mean, it is. That's and, the one that we played it. in the trailer. The first one is the comedy show at the hotel where Sybil Shepard invites him over to sit with her dad and her mom, and then two friends that are with them. And he's wedged right next to Eddie Albert, who's Kelly's dad. So good. Amazing. I mean, if anyone takes Best Supporting Actor or Actress honors from Eddie Albert in this marathon, I will be shocked because Often without saying a word. That's it. And he doesn't say a whole lot. He just takes in the nonsense (laughs) that Grodin keeps spewing. But the way they're wedged together, that awkwardness is hilarious. And the way we actually see Grodin's character talk to the wife character, and they have to do it over Eddie Albert. So the frame holds them in such a way where he's almost grimacing at the fact that it's like their words are daggers into yeah. him. And the we framing see that. of these dinner scenes is key. That's it. The second one is the drop the bomb scene, that sequence that we did play and did hear in the trailer where Lenny makes his intentions known to Kelly's father. She's made it clear that he's going to have to be on board with any type of relationship that they might have. And... The way we see it is this long, unbroken take. I think it's about three minutes where the men, again, are kind of squared off like adversaries. And we see the two women, how they're reacting to this whole thing in the frame, right? And it just plays out. So all of that is heightened. All of that tension, watching how each of the characters responds to those moments. As Lenny says, increasingly troubling and incredible things. I actually think it's about five minutes long, that single take. And then how about that sequence? Jeannie Berlin as Lila, the pecan pie scene Mm -hmm. where he is going to drop the bomb on her and reveal to her that the marriage is over. What? I I, I don't understand. What what are you trying to tell me? I mean, I'm getting nervous. I'm trying to say. We have to prepare ourselves. We have to prepare ourselves for anything, you know? I mean, everything could be terrific. The world could be singing. And then suddenly, suddenly for no reason at all, it's over. It's, it's over, Lila. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, Lenny. I think I know what you're trying to tell me. I didn't want it to happen. I didn't plan it. You're good. You're good. You deserve better than me. You deserve much better than me. I didn't want it to happen. I didn't plan it. 
plan anything like this. Oh, Lenny. Oh, Lenny. Oh, my God, Lenny. <laughs> oh, Lenny, you're dying. Oh, Lenny, you've got something and you never told me. Oh, Josh, Lenny. I rewatched this today, or at least a good chunk of it, what I could watch through my hands again. How long do you think that scene is? That dinner scene, it's not one take, but it's kind of one setup. It's, it felt it's a like traditional the, it felt like back the and longest forth. one. So if, if, the, if the one you were referring to before was five, five minutes, yeah. this is probably like seven. It's 11 minutes yeah, long. Yeah, I believe it. You can watch the whole thing, all 11 minutes of this just brutal breakup well, scene on YouTube. And we'll link to it in our show notes. But those cringeworthy moments are somehow the real thrill of this movie, though. They really are because they are brought about truly through what May is doing with her actors and with the camera. That's the hardest one to watch for me because while it is funny. It's heartbreaking. Yes. He's the heartbreak kid. And Berlin hits these, even though she is, in a sense, the clowniest figure. She gets the biggest comic gestures, I would say. Even though though Grodin is whipping himself up into a hysteria, she gets the bit where she says, I put cream on really excitedly while Uh her face is like completely dolped. But here she hits real notes of devastation. I mean, this woman is wrecked and you feel it. So that's a difficult one to watch. But I want to go back to that middle one, the extended one that's in the trailer. And you said you couldn't watch that one. But you know who can? Kelly. Oh yeah! Watch Sybil Shepherd. She's in that enjoying scene. it just she a little too much. She is so good throughout this film in what could have been a really thankless part. But mm-hmm. I think here is where May's attention pays off as well to each of these characters and what they can bring to it. She is at first a little bored. Now this is this is her supposed boyfriend. She hasn't really done much to encourage him, but her, her no, supposed boyfriend who is going to pledge his love to her father and she's she's kind of bored at the start until Grodin starts digging himself in deeper and you see this small smile on her face and she starts to gain a little more interest and then when her father responds and I don't remember if it's spoiled in the trailer I hope we didn't play it because I'm not going to say what we he won't says play here it. no her face it's like that's what she's been waiting yeah, for yeah i know and it's like this is why she i almost wonder if shepherd you know i talk about how uh, no one's left unscathed in this film, but it might be the Kelly character. And she might be the one who's almost the outside, the movie's point of view, you know, is I'm going to let these people hang themselves by their own actions. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, she's flirtatious at the beginning, but like I said, nothing, nothing to encourage the amount of devotion that Gronin gives to her. But she doesn't entirely discourage it either. She's almost like this outside force that is going to say, this will be a little test. And let's see how these people respond. Right. And they respond horribly. Yeah. Going to be on the beach tomorrow? Oh, yeah, sure. In the morning? Yeah, I don't even have breakfast. I just have some shoes. I put on my trunks and I'm down there. Just make sure you stay off my spot. Thanks for the nut. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the second film in our Elaine May Marathon, her second film, 1972's The Heartbreak Kid. And if you're listening and wondering why we are devoting this much time to a film from 1972, well, periodically here on the show, we do like to devote reviews to films and filmmakers that we aren't familiar enough with. And that was the case certainly with Elaine May and the four movies that she directed. Here's what held me back a little bit. And it gets to some of the stuff you're saying about the Kelly character and the way she's envisioned. Going back to A New Leaf, it's so absurd, it's so disconnected from reality that at no point 
did I ever really need to believe that a character like Walter Matthaus exists in the real world or that any of these scenarios are remotely believable? That's or more at least, of a yeah, farce, I yeah, would say. More that's of a farce. right. It's a farce. So they're much heightened versions anyway of any people who really exist or any scenarios that we would stumble across in our daily lives. This film, The Heartbreak Kids, certainly a lot less absurd, more grounded, Groden's Lenny, much more relatable as much as we may not want to relate to him. And the situations these characters find themselves in, I would say, are much more common than the ones we see in A New Leaf. But here's the thing, and you tell me if I'm crazy, Josh. At no point did I ever believe, though, did I ever really buy that Sybil Shepard was attracted to Lenny. I always assumed that she really was just playing a kind of game with him. That same game we see on her face as she's relishing just a little bit too much the reaming that her father is giving this character. She knows that she's got power with her sexuality and she's going to use it to at least get a little bit of enjoyment. It's a game that seems to reach its ultimate punchline when Groden appears at her school expecting that she's just been waiting for him this whole time. Like, she probably hasn't even gone to class. She's just sitting there at her house waiting for her lover to come take her away and, and marry her. And she gets to rebuke him almost with no regard for his feelings whatsoever. May chooses to go past that, though. I'm not going to spoil too much about the film here, but she goes past that, and she has them actually fall in love with each other. Mm-hmm. And she asks us to believe that that Kelly character would see any kind of future with Groden's character. I realize that the movie is all about self-delusion, but Lenny was so delusional and Kelly was so unreciprocating of his love that that transformation that happens there at the end of the film, it felt to me more like the kind of transformation that the plot needed to happen, not any kind of actual transformation I would expect those characters to undergo. Had a very similar experience, and because I also stumbled a bit over the ending of A New Leaf, I really wanted to sit with that and watch part of it again and think about, you know, is is this a pattern we're seeing here where it's clumsy endings to to May's films? But let me throw something at you and see if it helps at all. I'm not sure it completely solves the problem, but it it did give me something to latch on where I, I came to feel a little bit more resolution with how the film ends. First of all, let me back up and say... One key component to the Kelly character is this dollop of magical realism that May gives us when she first approaches Groden on the beach and he's laying down Mm -hmm. sunbathing. She blocks the sun. And so when he looks up at her, he's kind of blinkered by the light and May zooms in this really weird zoom into the sun itself. So we get lens flares and then Kelly comes into focus. So it's almost like his brain's been fried at that point, which does two things. It explains his behavior a little bit, why he's acting as loony as he is. And it also makes her something of a mythical, magical figure that has this power and exists maybe outside of reality. So there's that, but still doesn't completely explain the twist that she takes. I do wonder if there's something to the fact, again, we won't spoil it, but if you look at where Lenny is at the end of the film, and at this point it really has become more about him than their affair, he's kind of become Lila in a way. And to ask yourself, I like how that brings things wittily full circle so that he's in the position he was trying to get out of. But if you carry that through, that means that Kelly is sort of who Lenny was. And you have to ask yourself, 
how did Lenny talk himself into marrying Lila? Because mm-hmm. it's very clear from the beginning of the film. It wasn't I just Kelly. How. It wasn't just Kelly. We know what he was who after. Broke up the marriage, right? right? It, it, Not there at was all. there was trouble there at the beginning. No, that's, that's and so the, the question yeah. is like, is Kelly somewhat in the same position now, where she's going to ask herself very soon, maybe how did I end up with Lenny? No, that's a great point, but I think you really have to read into it. I don't think May gives us enough. She doesn't give us enough the about what's going on. Doesn't give us anything. I mean, really, it's very much a non-ending. It ending. focuses on Lenny, and we almost have no real perception of what Kelly wants out of life at all as a character, certainly at the end of the film. And I think that's one of the weaknesses. We've talked about Matthau and Grodin a little bit, and I like Grodin's performance as well, as uncomfortable as it makes me throughout. But what does it say about the way Grodin portrays the character, the way he is written and directed here, that Walter Matthau in A New Leaf wants to marry a rich woman so he can kill her and inherit her money. And I found him way more likable oh, than Lenny. Oh, absolutely. Way more likable <laughs> than, than Lenny. I mean, I do respect, again, these contradictory feelings. That's what I enjoy about the film and May's film so far is that you can respect his desire to want to make his life right. And actually, it is self-serving, absolutely, that he's going to divorce Lila. But I think the movie makes pretty clear that... It's way better to leave her than to stay with her. It's not going to bring anybody happiness, either Lenny or Lila, if they stay together. And he does want to somehow make it as right as he possibly can. So I see those elements. But man, every time he starts into some yarn to get out of spending time with his wife and he goes off to be with Sybil Shepherd's character, I just found myself loathing him so much well, more. And just kind of not wanting to look at him anymore, quite frankly. And I'll tell you why. Because Walter Matthau is much more appealing because hopefully you've never Never plotted something like that right. before. Whereas Grodin's scenario, that is much more relatable. I mean, I've been in a hotel room waiting for Debbie to be ready to leave. It's a great and sequence. Just, just kind of simmering because <laughs> I'm I want to. I want to get out. Oh, you can meet me down. Don't there. ever say. I'm going down, Adam. <laughs> if you've made that mistake or haven't made that mistake, I'm let me warn sure. you. <laughs> I'm sure I have. So I think there is a relatability to all these little moments between them that makes your skin crawl because you realize, okay, you may not go as far as Lenny, but you've had those feelings or those instincts in certain moments. Absolutely. And, you know, I would also argue that I don't know that the movie puts into place that these two should not be together immediately. I really like the time that it gave in the opening, their drive down to Florida, where they're enjoying moments together. They enjoy singing together. Right up until they sleep together. Terribly. (laughs) Yes. And then it all does fall apart. But there, you know, there's this idea of the effort that it's going to take. Yeah. That you're going to have to put into a marriage. And Lenny is not interested in the effort at all. And so that also plays forward when you look ahead. The irony is he's going to put in so much effort right. to get Kelly. That's I mean, he's going to work say. overtime. Yeah. But when is that going to end? When might that end? No, that's, so that's really the it's key. It's a cycle it's depicting here, really. It is because he thought that somehow Lila and finding someone he could connect with and be intimate with, clearly that's what kept him interested in her, was that he hadn't slept with her yet. She yeah, made it, him wait the until they got married. That. And then once he has, it reminded me actually a little bit of Anomalisa from Charlie Kaufman mm, this past year. Yeah. The illusion is shattered once his goal has been achieved, right? And what we do see at the end of this film, keeping it pretty vague, is that he thinks he has found the answer. He's put in all the effort. That's what I respect about him, is that he actually is willing to embarrass himself and be rebuked and just be a fool, basically. 
and move himself all the way across the country and give up all of his money because he is so sure that she is the answer to all of his problems. She's the Shiksa goddess, right, who is Mm -hmm. somehow the answer to everything he would ever want in life. And then at the end of the movie, it does pose the question, okay, once he's achieved that goal, once he no longer really has a purpose and it isn't the answer— Where do you go from there? Mm -hmm. What's next? I mean, that's really the provocative question at the core of this movie. And we haven't talked about it yet. I don't know if you picked this up or not, but I spent most of the film, at least the part of the film that Jeannie Berlin is in, which is about half the movie, wondering how Elaine May found someone to so capably imitate her, right? After seeing her in A New Leaf. Yeah, you thought it was that similar, huh? She makes the same faces. They have similar voices. They're similarly just, I would say, silly and goofy and awkward. And they also, most importantly, have the same vulnerability. And then, of course, I pick up later, it's her daughter. Jeannie Berlin is Elaine May's daughter. You're you're revealing this to me now. I did not know that. You didn't know that? Okay. I mean, literally spent the whole film going, how did she find this this alter ego that is so close to who she is? Well, that's how she she gave birth to her. So it's not an accident. And again, those kind of wonderful contradictions. She's one of those characters, if we ever did a top five list of just really irritating, annoying characters, Groden's character would be absolutely in the mix. I'd have to consider Lila as well. But then being able to have that kind of real deep feeling of sadness for her and empathy and sympathy. I mean, the fact that she brings all of that out, that's really a tribute to Berlin. You've been acting this way the whole trip. I haven't. I've been a little irritable in Georgia. I was fine in Virginia and Delaware. I just wanted to know how it felt to you. It felt really terrific. It's just... I don't understand why I have to announce it all the time. You don't have to announce it all the time. Just tell me. I have to be reassured. What's wrong with that? It's difficult to give out bulletins in the heat of passion. You hardly said a word to me all night. I'm always quiet at night. You were never quiet before we were married. We never made love before we were married. You fooled around a little bit, but this is all new. It's all new to me, too. I think she probably outclasses her mother in terms of overall performance. I mean, May's May's funnier in A New Leaf, I would think, uh, with the physical comedy for sure. And uh, Berlin does have some of that here. But these other degrees that she brings to it, and I'm thinking of a very early scene, one of their first nights together where they get into this spat over it. And how she responds is She's very tender I know. with him yeah. and, and sympathetic. And then she even turns it a degree more and becomes seductive. Yeah. That is a really amazing scene. It all scene. plays out. It starts out with her again being irritating yes. because she's admonishing him like a mom almost. But then it becomes tender and then it becomes seductive all in the span of about 40 seconds. It's quite a performance. It really is. And if you want to see another good performance from her, if you didn't recognize Jeannie Berlin, she's really good opposite Anna Paquin in Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret. Sadly, the Heartbreak Kid is not available through most conventional means. You can't get a DVD from Netflix. It's not streaming through Netflix or Amazon. Thankfully, some wise and enterprising individual has posted a decent-looking version of the whole film on YouTube. We'll link to that in our show notes. And, of course, check your local library. That's where I got my copy. may have a copy. That's how Josh saw it, indeed. Start pestering the Criterion Collection while you're at it to get busy adding some Elaine May Blu-rays. All right, more glowing praise when we come back, this time for our performances in the most recent Massacre Theater. We'll also have a new version of our favorite game. Plus, 
Adam rubs it in with details about his trip to Broadway where he took out a second mortgage to see (laughs) Hamilton. Not that bad. We'll go into the break with a couple thoughtful listener voicemails that were left in response to our recent review of the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar. Stay with us. Hey, guys. It's Douglas uh, here in Chicago. Long-time listener, first-time calling. Simply because I feel like you guys got Hail Caesar completely wrong. The movie just was not working for me. Uh, It felt split in half. The comedic scenes worked pretty well, although the humor was actually lacking, I think. In my theater, at least, I was pretty quiet, uh, not a lot of laughter. Uh, but the other half of the movie, with the classic Cohen ambiguity and mystery, uh, just felt completely forced, uh, even down to the music. I could immediately tell when I was going to get a quote-unquote Cohen scene and when I was going to get a purely comedic scene. Uh, it really did feel like two separate films a lot of the time. And I know that's not necessarily a valid piece of criticism. You know, many movies establish the tone through uh, soundtrack pretty quickly. But because of this with Hill Caesar, uh, the jokes just didn't feel appropriate for the subject matter. You guys compared it to A Serious Man, but in that film, the humor felt like a natural extension of that world or uh, the philosophy that it was putting forward. Thing after thing is tossed to Larry for no reason, but the humor didn't really come from the absurdity of the situations. You weren't laughing because of how outlandish it was. Uh, some of the films they grounded. Not the case here. Here you get a dance number followed by a scene where Josh Brolin meets a tempting figure in a Chinese restaurant. And I realize that the Coens are probably mimicking the structure of the old films it's parodying in a way that I don't fully understand, but that doesn't really excuse the fact that the film totally didn't come together. Uh, didn't care about any of the characters, anything that was going on. Felt like a cartoon without any real stakes, which made the more serious mystical scenes full of poetic irony. Ah, the last piece of the puzzle doesn't quite fit. Feel lazy and uninspired. All right, done ranting. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Hey guys, thanks as always for putting on a thoughtful show. I do have to take some uh, issue with your discussion of Hail Caesar. I think you're right that the Coen brothers are more about ideas than anything else, but by settling on religion, I think you guys ignored the politics of the film. Capitalism versus communism and the superficial homophobia of it embodied in the one-dimensional character from Channing Tatum. I don't think the Coen brothers are right-wing, which the film is, and I don't think they're homophobes. Why make a movie that supports questionable politics? It's hard to say, but I think the answer lies in a very different interpretation in the nature of the Mannix character and his boss. You guys described Mannix as Christ and his boss as God. I think Mannix is to the satire Hail Caesar what George Clooney is to the fictional epic Hail Caesar. Mannix is Caesar's man on the ground. That's where the politics get even more confusing. In Mannix's world, the choice doesn't even include Christ, or in his case, communism. It's the choice between commercial art and the military-industrial complex. Add to that the caricature that is Channing Tatum's prancing pink Okami, and you have a very muddled statement that will undoubtedly require additional views. On the plus side, as you guys mentioned, there are plenty of fantastic performances along the way to make that more of a pleasure than a chore. Keep up the good work. Thanks, guys. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor. Grow up to be a hero and a scholar. The ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self starter by 14. They placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away Across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up Inside he was longing for something to be a part of The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter 
Then a hurricane came and devastation rained. Our man saw his future drip, dripping down the train. Put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain. And he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain. Well, the word got around, they said this kid is insane, man. Hey, folks, wanted to jump in real quick and share our thank yous in our donation segment, Josh, or as it's coming to be known, this week in film spotting pronunciation fun. Oh boy. Oh no, it, it continues to be great here. We start with a donation from Adam, and he can't wait to hear me try to pronounce this. Gavla, Sweden. That's what I'm going with. Thank you for a great show. I've been a listener for a few years and finally felt I had to pay the dealer. Just wanted to comment on all the comments about pronunciations. As a Swedish listener, I'm used to you guys mispronouncing every Swedish name from Bergman to Vikander, and I'm fine with that. You know why? Because you don't speak Swedish, and our language is hard, and you should pronounce it in an American way. Thank you, Adam. Oh, that's way too reasonable. I know. On a side note, Adam's pronunciation of Peter Stormar made me laugh so hard. Now I wonder how I'm doing it. Hope you always say it like that. So you said it closer to what it is did than I, I okay. did, but I've always said Peter Stormare. Mare, not okay. Stormar. Okay. So had a little bit of correspondence with Adam, as I want to do from time to time, and he wrote this. I actually really wanted to say that any way you pronounce any of these words is fine, and I think it's silly that people hound you about it. We Swedes are polite and do not bother if people mispronounce our names. If you want to know the <laughs> Swedish pronunciation to Alicia Vikander, the C in Alicia is pronounced S, so it's Alicia. Got it. And the A in Vikander is hard for Americans to say. You say the A kind of in your cheek with twang. We say the A more open, closer to how you say a short U, like in thunder. So, Vikander? I don't know. I don't, okay. That was all beyond me. Peter Stormare is not a Stormare. I love that pronunciation so much, Adam says. It's Stormari. Think first storm, then add Ari, pronounced like the end of Volari. You know the song. Then say it fast. That's pretty much the Swedish pronunciation. Love you both, even if I am a Team Josh guy. Oh, I like Adam even more now. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was a lot of fun. We also want to thank Sean in Alexandria, Virginia, Film Spotting East. He has no beefs with our pronunciations, at least as of right now. A Silver Club donor, Patrick in Madison, Wisconsin. And we also got one from Sam in Asheville, North Carolina. Hello, fellas. I've been listening to your wonderful show for two years and enough guilt built up in me that I figured it was time to show my gratitude. Also, next time Paul Thomas Anderson or Wes Anderson come out with a movie, I would love to hear your top characters list for both of those filmmakers. I love your Coen Brothers episode. Consider it done. Surely that's going to happen as we continue to run out of top five topics. We will get to those, but they are very good. Thank you, Sam. And we also got a Silver Club donation from Mike in Melbourne, Australia. And speaking of Melbourne, Australia, Mike sent us a lovely note and was very impressed with the fact that we pronounced it properly and not Melbourne like most Americans would. The secret there is that's how Sam and I used to say it. It was always Melbourne, Australia. And let me guess, you were corrected by Until a listener. Until we were corrected. And then we realized that it's just so much more fun to say Melbourne. So that's what we're going with, even if that's probably not even 100% correct. Mike says, Good day, guys. What better introduction from an Australian, right? I thank you very much for coming into my life. My commute from the inner suburbs of Melbourne to the city is now punctuated with top fives, detailed movie reviews, massacre theater, where people look at me on the train strangely as I find myself giggling to myself and love listening to the donation list and seeing how so many people around the world gain the same enjoyment that I do. You have such a wonderful group of fans out there in the world, and I'm very proud to now call myself one of them. I'm sending you a little token of my thanks and appreciation. I've probably listened to 50 episodes over the last month to catch 
catch up in a hurry over 10 years of missed episodes. So it's only fair that I give you US $50 to say thank you. I'm sure given the state of the Australian currency exchange rate at the moment, this will resemble something in the order of one to two million Australian dollars. (laughs) But hey, what can I say? You guys are worth it. Food, mortgage, and other non-essentials can just wait. I'm glad to hear Mike's got his priorities straight. Yeah, we're essentials. I love it. Two new $5 a month donors, Pekka in Barcelona, Spain, and Omar in Chula Vista, California. And that brings us to our final donation. It comes in, we get this annually, as you will hear, Carol Westbrook, MD and PhD. She is the beer doctor. Can you be an MD and PhD in beer? Apparently. Apparently you can, and maybe other things. Carol writes in, I believe from Pennsylvania, but as you will hear, Josh, she is moving a little bit closer to us. It is time for the 88th Annual Academy Awards and for my third annual Beer and Oscar Pairing, in which I recommend a beer to go along with the nominees for Best Picture. That means it's also time for my annual contribution to support film spotting. This year I'm going to up the ante since I'm coming home. After 10 years living in various small towns and rural areas, I will be moving back to the Chicago area as I'm retiring from my medical practice. Because my options for viewing movies are now limitless, I'll be relying even more on your sage advice. Without your recommendations, I I never would have known about many of the excellent films which were nominated this year, and some which should have been, such as Straight Outta Compton, which I watched, but apparently most of the Academy members did not. I like this film so much that I added it as an honorable mention to my Oscar and beer pairing. Thanks, Film Spotting, for being there for me. We will link to Carol's Oscar and beer pairing in our show notes, as we always do. And to give you an example, paired with Mad Max Fury Road, Carol writes, You killed our world is the recurring cry of the beautiful young wives, and what better to drink with a ruined world than Stone's Ruination Double IPA? I can vouch for that one. You can? Yes. As a matter of fact, I've been to Stone's Brewery in Escondido, California, but it's kind of a sad story. I got in, and it was a super long wait for tables, and we had the kids, so... We just left. You didn't get to try a beer there? <laughs> no. But you've had it. I've had it. It's very good. And excellent pairing with Fury Road. Though you've well never, done. You've never had the beer and watched Mad Max Fury Road. I'll have to try that. But now you will. Thank you very much, Carol. Very, very generous donation. Thank you, everyone, for your generous donations, including all of our monthly subscribers. You really do keep us doing what we're doing. And the world's going to know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done But just you wait, just you wait Honor, duty, excuses for bloodshed That is why I left it behind all those years ago It took just one night To bring me back Once he has the sword, that will be the end of all of us Welcome back to Film Spotting. That's the voice of Michelle Yeoh in the trailer for the upcoming Crouching Tiger, The Sword of Destiny, not to be confused with Tenacious Deed, The Pick of Destiny, though that's what I think of every time I read The Sword of Destiny. It is the sequel, 15 years later, to Ang Lee's Oscar-winning Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which also co-starred Yo. The sequel is directed by the famous martial arts choreographer Yuan Wu Ping. He first came to notice here in the West with his work on The Matrix and with Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. He was also the fight choreographer for the original Crouching Tiger. You can see Sword of Destiny via Netflix. It's making its premiere there as well as on some IMAX screens this weekend. And it's the film right now, Josh, we are planning to review. There wasn't an obvious film coming out, certainly not an obvious film coming out theatrically. And 
we don't know a whole lot about this or have a whole lot of expectations for it. It kind of snuck up on me, frankly. But because of our love for the original, we might as well see the sequel. I got the new TV just in time. If I'm going to be watching this thing on Netflix and I'm not going to make it to IMAX, I don't even know, is it going to play at the Navy Pier IMAX? I don't know. All right. Well, I'll be watching it at home. So. It's going to appear at the Josh Larson That's right. IMAX. Maybe I'll invite you over. Yeah. I was going to say, can I come over and check out the big screen? Your, your schedule is a nightmare. I don't know <laughs> if I can handle that. Fair enough. Inspired by those 15 years between Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and its new sequel, our current poll question asks you, and this was a poll that Michael and Tasha posed last week on the show, what is the best long delayed sequel your options are scorsese these are the color of money from 2015 mad max fury road and star wars the force awakens or toy story 3 or you could go with other and josh we haven't done this in a while where in these weeks between the revealing of the poll results we've actually posed the proper version of the poll question when we quickly realized how flawed our poll was mm-hmm. many people have written in with one of the answers that Clearly may not be the right answer, but it had to be in the mix. And this just squarely falls on my shoulders. I put this poll question together and somehow I overlooked before sunset, before midnight, either one of those films from Richard Linklater, long delayed and wonderful sequels. And they certainly belong in there ahead of The Color of Money, which I love The Color of Money, but I put it in there just so we'd have another option to consider. Well, and those would have been your picks, too. So you're going to obviously have to vote. Other. I mean, I like all those films as well. Yeah, but you though, love them. I love them. Mad Max not Fury Road. Well, them? Mad Max Fury Road, I'd consider. Yeah. But you're right, especially Before Sunset as a response and sequel to Before Sunrise. Yeah, that would be my vote. So See, I am going other. For me, I'm still debating between Fury Road and Toy Story 3. I've got those two right there. Both great. They're both great. For our Chicago area listeners, we have even more movie passes to give away. Want to mention them now. Whiskey, Tango, Foxtrot, the new film starring Tina Fey, is screening on March 1st at 7 p.m. You can enter to win those passes at filmspotting.net. The info is right there in our top stories. And also The Wave. Josh, this is a movie described as a nail-biting action-slash-disaster film from Norway that puts Hollywood disaster movies to shame. Is that, is that really hard to do, though? I no, mean, probably not. necessarily a high bar, but, but sounds seems interesting. like a spectacle, and you can go see that spectacle at an advanced screening on March 2nd. And how about this? Always a spectacle when we get another film from Terrence Malick, Night of Cups. We're also giving away passes to see that in advance of its release. It's screening here in Chicago on March 7th. So if... You didn't get all that information. That's fine. Just go to filmspotting.net. There are links to enter and all the details you need about the dates and the times. Let's move on to Massacre Theater. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. There is only one reality in the world today. Look to the West, Judah. Don't be a fool. Look to Rome. I would rather be a fool than a traitor or a killer. I am a soldier. Yes, who kills for Rome. And Rome is evil. I warn you. No! I warn you, Rome is an affront to God. Rome is strangling my people and my country, the whole earth. But not forever. I tell you, the day Rome falls, there will be a shout of freedom such as the world has never heard before. Either you help me or you oppose me, you have no other choice. You're either for me or against me. If that is the choice, then I am against you. 
Of course, that was Charlton Heston as Judah Ben-Hur and Stephen Boyd as Masala in 1959's Ben-Hur, adapted from the Lou Wallace novel by Carl Tunberg and directed by William Wyler. Dina Sponheim, a listener from Norco, California, wrote in, While I have been witness to the movie spectacle that is Ben-Hur, it was not until I heard the inspired staccato voice work of Mr. Larson that my initial instinct was confirmed. What other master of the medium could perform these lines as if you were George Takei channeling Charlton Heston? (laughs) If that is the choice, then I am against you. I know you were going for that. I applaud you, sir, Dina says. Your dedication to your craft does not go unnoticed. Obvious tie-in, Ben-Hur is a 1950s-era movie-making spectacular concerning the tyranny of Rome. Hail Caesar, the movie we reviewed, includes a 1950s-era movie-making spectacular concerning a Roman tyrant. You got it. We also heard from Ed Savoy in Harrisonburg, Virginia were that it was so simple that there was only one tie-in to the subject of your massacre, 1959's Ben-Hur. All punctuation included, I won't be discounted on a face-off technicality. The obvious link is that Ben-Hur is the clear model for the Hail Caesar within Hail Caesar, and Clooney is definitely channeling his inner Chuck Heston. However, the less obvious tie-in is homoeroticism, isn't it always? As you mentioned, there's a dance number in Hail Caesar so freighted with subtext it threatens to become text, and reportedly... Ben-Hur screenwriter Gore Vidal told Masala actor Stephen Boyd that the reason he and Heston's Hur were at odds was because of simmering tension from their past romantic relationship. Now can we just get Josh to tell Adam that he blew it up? (laughs) I'd love to hear you tell me that I blew it up. But (laughs) if we had only gotten that direction, think about how much better that performance could have been. It it really needed some homoeroticism. I don't know if we're capable of working on multiple levels. (laughs) Subtext? Sky Thorleifson, one of the great names in film spotting listenership from Winnipeg, Manitoba, wrote, First time contender here, but I had to take the opportunity to thank you for absolutely destroying Ben-Hur. The cartoonish line delivery actually helped in this case, as well as the fact that you pick probably the most iconic, overbloated conversation in the whole movie. Ben-Hur is for me what Dr. Shivago is for you guys. I don't think we were negative about Dr. Shivago, though. Not that much. I get that it's a 50s epic made with a specific set of ideals for the era, but it's so self-serious that today it strikes me as hilarious. You guys definitely nailed the hilarious part. Oh, as did the Cone Brothers, since that's the obvious parallel to Hail Caesar. Burn, <laughs> this is good, Burn. Yeah. Burn Krafzig, and then he has A pronounced as in Mara. <laughs> Which one? Mara? It doesn't help us, Burn. Rooney or Kate? He's from Northborough, Massachusetts. Josh's Charlton Heston could have been improved if he'd been willing to ad-lib something about an attempt to pry the sword from my cold, dead hands. Apart from the obvious tie-in between her and Caesar in style and attitude of biblical epics, I was also surprised to learn that, despite his conservatism in his later years, Heston became prominent just after the Hollywood McCarthy witch hunts and was genuinely opposed to them. Our listeners never disappoint with the tie-ins to Massacre Theater, all the tie-ins that we, of course, considered when we picked that scene. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner with those cold but not dead hands. The winner is Ryan McQuaid from San Antonio, Texas. Longtime listener, congratulations, Ryan. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting T-shirt. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I want to say that stupid line one more time. Somehow we're going to try to enact a scene now that's going to be even more painful than your Chuck Heston impression, Josh. (laughs) I am not going method with this. (laughs) No, no. I started off, you're going to give me the action. We're not going to give you any hints. There is a roundabout tie-in to this week's show. That's really all you need to know. Josh, are you ready? I don't know if I am, but let's give it a shot. All right. 
and action. Okay, kid, listen. I'm coming in, okay? No, 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 don't. Now, exactly what the hell is the situation here? Would you shit yourself or something? Uh, I wish. I, I, I got it stuck. You got what stuck? It. Oh, it, um, um, well, listen, uh, it's not the end of the world. These kind of things happen, huh? Let's have a look at it. Oh, for God in heaven's shh, sake. Shh, shh, quiet. Uh, Sheila? Sheila? Uh, no. Honey? No. Sheila, honey, uh, you got to come here. You got to see this. And, and scene. scene. Well done. I, you know, you acted terrified. So I think that's how one should respond to my acting. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, March 7th. We may have found your acting doppelganger. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Last week... Michael and Tasha did review favorably The Witch, the latest horror film about a 17th century family and a whole lot of really dreadful things that happened to them. I know that just based on watching a couple of the trailers for that film, Josh, but you've seen it. In fact, you've seen The Witch twice. And even though Michael and Tasha, as I'm told, did a very thorough job dissecting the movie last week, I know you wanted to mention it and recommend it as well, mainly because we do think, and a couple other listeners have chimed in with this on social media, you think it might be a good contender, potentially, for the film spotting Golden Brick at the end of the year. Yeah, I don't think we see a lot of genre films, and though Tasha and Michael debated a little bit whether or not this could be qualified as a horror film, I I definitely think it is. And for the Golden Brick, usually we're doing something a little bit out of the mainstream Mm -hmm. or a familiar stream, let's say. But this, as a first-time film, first of all, has such creative control and vision, which is one of the things we look for in recreating this period setting and using the camera in interesting ways. And the cinematography is so crucial here as well that I think it it does qualify. So I just want to get it on the list. I want to recommend it along with Tasha and Michael. And I also want to share my viewing experience because (laughs) I did see this over a year ago at Sundance 2015 and knew I liked it, but as I mentioned, it was a midnight screening and um, had a few questions about it that I just wanted to revisit. So mm-hmm. was holding off till I saw it again, went to a theater near my house on Friday. This was the afternoon. No kidding. Within the first probably 10 minutes, and this isn't spoiling anything to no. say that we see the witch within the first probably 10 to 15 minutes doing awful things, okay. like really awful things. <laughs> Lights go out. Power goes out. Remember that windstorm we had in Chicago yeah. last Friday afternoon? Yeah. We're sitting there in the dark like yeah. with the exit signs. I think we're no, I think it might have been the emergency lights were all those on with strangers in this movie. Of course, I'm by myself. Yeah. I mean, and probably not a very packed theater on a Friday uh, morning. There for the were. Witch. Yeah. Which would be worse? I mean, there were maybe like yeah. 14 people there. Would it be worse to be by yourself? Yes, probably. But I didn't know these people. Yeah. Who goes to the witch? Yeah, you tweeted about that. And I, mean, I knew I knew exactly what you were talking about because we actually weird don't... people go to the witch on a Friday by no. themselves. Yeah, like, like me. you. Yeah. And we don't live that far apart. And you actually saw this at the theater that is the one I most commonly go to. Right. And when I saw you tweet about this, I wasn't shocked at all because on Friday morning I was at home, my wife was at home, I was packing for a weekend trip when in the shower. Your power went out? My power went out because, yeah, <laughs> due to the wind, it affected it was that intense. whole kind of neighborhood. And yeah. so when you said it affected your movie, I was like, oh, I know where Josh went to see that movie. Well, it came back on, thankfully, and, and I powered hours through. a couple for us. I, no, it was, it was maybe 10 minutes. So really? I powered through. But this movie, there's been some debate about whether or not this is scary. And I agree, scariness is not the bar you need to set for an effective horror film. 
I tend to think if they are scary, it's a better experience. This is scary, and this is the test it's passed for me. There are certain horror movies where figures in them I will worry about when I wake up in the middle of the night and are kind of in that daze. Oh, man. You know that haze that I'm talking about? So (laughs) obviously the twins from The Shining fall into this category. Mm -hmm. Baghead Boy from The Orphanage. I've like walked out into the hall at night. Baghead Boy. You know who I'm talking about. (laughs) I do, unfortunately, but I've just never referred to him. I've walked into the hall in the middle of the night, terrified I'm going to see that kid. This morning, you know I've been getting up early to Uh write lately. So Uh like dark early. Have you noticed the moon? These last couple nights. No, I don't get up that early. All right. Well, I'm up taking the dog outside. The moon is huge. And behind Uh these trees that are no leaves, right? It's February. So it's witch time here in Chicago. And it's like I'm instantly transported Uh back into the movie, terrified that that witch is in my backyard. So according to that measurement, very effective horror film. I don't know how I'm going to finally see this. You've got to. I need somebody to go with me and hold my hand, and I don't know who that's going to be. And I'm going to sneak in and pull the power on the theater somehow. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, Josh recommends The Witch. I can't wait to see it, or maybe I really can wait to see it. I can recommend something as well, and I know I'm going to go way out on a limb here and tell you that Hamilton, the musical, is incredible. You've you heard us it. talk about it. I'm shocked. A little bit here on the show <laughs> over the past few weeks. And I'm very cognizant since seeing it last week, Josh, exactly a week ago as we are taping this. I'm very aware of the fact that it's almost impossible to talk about seeing this show, seeing this production with this cast on Broadway and not come off as just completely insufferable. But I truly do feel. Let's see how you do. Oh, man. I'm going to go for it, Josh. <laughs> I feel so blessed. To have had that experience. I have not had a theatrical experience. I'm not sure that I've had any type of artistic experience, witnessing an artistic experience like the one I had watching Hamilton. And I saw it with friend of the show, Mikado Murphy, who lives there in New York. He hadn't seen it. And just like me, had actually been avoiding it as much as he could. So he knew a little bit more than me just by nature of the fact that he's in New York. So he knew a few things, but otherwise had not been listening to it. Certainly wasn't obsessively listening to it like so many people I know have been doing with the soundtrack. So we were there both just ready to be taken on the journey. And we also had really good seats. And to come out and see Miranda play Hamilton, to see Leslie Odom Jr.'s Aaron Burr, Christopher Jackson's George Washington, David Diggs be Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and Jonathan Groff, too, play King George. It's something I'm never going to forget. And I think Mikado and I, we talked about this walking out. We both expected, just based on his reputation, the virtuosity. We thought we would see a pretty great bit of theater. I didn't expect for to pack the emotional wallop hmm. that it did. It, it laid me out like few things have ever laid me out. And the way Miranda was able to balance the politics, the romance, the comedy— the tragedy, all in a production about family and rivalries and forgiveness and redemption. And, of course, one of the subjects near and dear to my heart, narrative about how you tell your story and who tells your story for you. It's the stuff of Shakespeare. It's the stuff of Greek drama going back way before Shakespeare. And yet watching it, it couldn't feel more of its time. It just feels so urgent and so necessary right now. And you've heard a little bit of the music here on the show already. We're playing a few pieces here during the break, but it was transcendent. That's the only word I can use to describe 
my reaction and the night I had watching Hamilton. And when it does come to Chicago, which is going to do in September, even though it won't be with this cast, I'm going to do everything I can do to make sure that I take my whole family. Connor, he'll be six then, Mm -hmm. probably not ready for a night of Hamilton, but the three other kids... With Quinn being the youngest, he'll be nine at that point. I think he'll be ready for it. I know Holden being the history buff that he is and knowing way more about Hamilton going in than I do at age 13, he'll be ready for it. I I just can't wait to share it with him. And I'm actually really debating whether or not I want to make them listen to some of the music or go in fresh like I did. I, of course, want them to go in and have the same experience I did. But I'm also so obsessed now with the soundtrack been listening to it for about a week straight and virtually nothing else that it's so hard to be at home and not want to play it and not share those songs with them. That's the question for me too. I haven't listened to many of them yet because of that reason. I mean, we're, we're going to be in New York this summer. I, I don't see how we'll get tickets for that, but I do want to take the family. I'm going to be in trouble now that you've seen it with Adeline, my older daughter, because she's just obsessed with Broadway in general and mm-hmm. this music in particular and wants to see it. So we're going to have to try to do that when it does come to Chicago. But yeah, should I listen to the music or not? I don't know. I kind of want to have your experience and, and know it then, but there's also something, if this is going to be a one once-in-a-lifetime thing, yeah. something to have the familiarity, um, you know, similar to when you go to a concert and, and you know exactly. the band's music well. Well, so. and that was fascinating to me, being in a theater where it was clear just watching the people around me, watching their body language, seeing some of them mouth the words. Yeah, they were familiar with it, huh? Everybody was. I mean, huh. maybe not everybody. I'm sure Mikado and I weren't the only two people there who didn't know it, but maybe we were. I mean, honestly, it was very weird to be at a Broadway show. And how often does that happen? An original yeah, Broadway show. An original show Broadway show that, that hasn't history, been out that right? long. Yeah, there's no history. And yet everybody there is singing along like they're watching their favorite band sing their favorite songs. That's what it was like. So it was an out-of-body experience. It truly was. And the fun didn't end after that. I wanted to mention some of our listeners who came out, met me at the Perfect Pint there, just a couple blocks there from the Richard Rogers Theater. Mikado came out. Josh Youngerman, who's been to a lot of our live shows, a Chicago kid and lives in New York now. He's an actor. He was there. Kate, who we are going to hear from, Josh, as we haven't taped it at this point, but our Hateful Eight Revenant feedback that yes. at some point we're going to share with our audience. Kate sent us a really fascinating email. She came out, had a good talk with her, and Jake Meltzer, his dad, Kurt, they've been listening to the show basically since its inception. Kurt couldn't make it out, but Jake was there, and then a couple others, Griffin, JD, and Ben. Ben, a film student at NYU, JD, a showrunner and a comedian, and Griffin, who I had literally just the night before I met him, watched the first half of the pilot episode of Martin Scorsese's Vinyl on HBO, and then I meet Griffin, Griffin Newman, who is in the show. Oh, really? Who I had just watched get berated by Bobby Cannavale <laughs> at a scene along with the fellow A&R guys. Just all great, really fascinating, fun people. And I never get tired of meeting our listeners, certainly when they're as interesting as this group of listeners was. And I wanted to share a little bit from Jake, who wrote in after our meetup. He said, I wanted to thank you again for doing the meetup last night. I'm pretty sure nobody expected it to run until one in the morning. So Jake actually took off a little bit early. We didn't leave until 
about 2.45 Yikes. is when we left the bar <laughs> on a Tuesday night. But time flies, etc. It's very rare for me to find myself in the company of people who possess the same passion for film that I do. It was simultaneously intimidating and exhilarating to know that I didn't have to hold back on my film knowledge and opinions, but at the same time realize that I still have a lot of my own blind spotting to do, in this case, the work of Todd Solon. So there were some separate conversations going on. I wasn't part of that, but clearly Jake was talking with some of the other guys about it. I particularly loved the behind-the-scenes nuggets you gave about the show, whether it was the story of seeing Brick and subsequently sort of meeting up with Ryan Johnson. That's a story I haven't shared with you. No. I have met up with him other times, but this was kind of a funny story where we just missed each other. Or the story of meeting Josh and what he brings to the table as well as making fun of his accent. No, I would never do that, Josh. I don't know what Jake's talking about. Well, I, I don't know what hey, he's talking the about. the accent is what I bring to the table. <laughs> it is among the things you bring to the table. So thank you, Jake, for those very kind words. I'm going to give Jake a kind word. You know who Jake reminded me of? Hmm. He looks a little bit like Michael Fassbender. Whoa, yeah. whoa. No, he does. He's got the red hair, a similar look to Fassbender. Not, not quite as... You sure it wasn't uh, formidable like, like a presence as six Fassbender that this night went till? <laughs> Not quite the presence that Fassbender brings, but similar. And I think the other people at the meetup would agree with me. So, Jake, there's my compliment back to you. My thanks again to everybody who came to the meetup. And yeah, sell a kidney, do whatever you got to do, go see Hamilton. It really is that good. All right. Well, how about The Godfather? Is The Godfather the undisputed best film of 1972? Mm -hmm. Well, it's in the pantheon anyway. So Adam and I consider a handful of other titles for the film spotting top five, the best of 72, when we come back. Stay with us. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. To King's College, I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is, I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I gotta holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge, I'm a diamond in the rough, a shiny piece of coal. Trying to reach my goal, my power of speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get cold. I shoulder every burden, every disadvantage I've learned to manage. I don't have a gun to brandish, I walk these streets famished. The plan is to fan this spark into a flame, but damn, it's getting from Dog a Podcast. It's a show about the stories, people, and places one 30-something dog walker finds during her many walks. It's part fiction and part real. You know, like Cujo. Anyway, I'm trying to find my way in a new city. I'm hoping to make new friends, even date. And I'm walking dogs to pay the rent and feed myself. Along the way, I meet some super interesting people, dog psychics, masterminds behind internet-famous dogs, and everyday dog-friendly folks who let me into their lives. You can find out more and listen to the podcast at dogapodcast.com. I'd really like it if you did. It would make me happier than old yeller. Oh, wait, that's the sad one. Oops. 
But do you know what's not sad? Dog a podcast at dogapodcast.com. Sit, stay, check it out. Hi, this is Danny Boyle, director of Sunshine and Train Spotting, and you're listening to Film Spotting. C'est très bien, Maurice. Vous pouvez vous retirer. Merci. Bonsoir, messieurs dames. Vous avez vu? C'est l'exemple même de ce qu'il ne faut pas faire avec le martini dry. Il faut être indulgent. Maurice est un homme du peuple. Il n'a pas eu d'éducation. This is Film Spotting, and that was a brief clip from the 1972 film The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie from director Luis Buñuel. That film, of course, Josh. Number one, I think it ended up, after all that haggling on a top five over a year ago, it ended up being the movie that we agreed was our joint number one blind spot. It was at number one, We were going to dive into some of these films that we were really embarrassed to admit we've never seen. That film from Buñuel was one that we both agreed we needed to finally remedy. And it turns out it was released in 1972. So we've put it off for over a year. But with this top five, the best films of 1972, coinciding with our discussion earlier of Elaine Mays, The Heartbreak Kid from 1972, we knew this was our opportunity to watch The Discreet Charm. We're not going to get into a lengthy review here, but we felt an obligation certainly to see it and see if it would make either of our top fives. Did it make your top five, Josh? didn't, but I would not take that as any sort of slight because I really was not – I'd seen other Buñuel films, but I really was not prepared for the density, yeah. shall we say, of what this movie is tackling. And so watched it on one viewing, enjoyed it quite a bit, but really feel like I need a second, maybe even a third viewing. And let me – yeah, let me say real quick because I've seen Belle du Jour. I've seen The Exterminating Angel. I've seen That Obscure Object of Desire – and maybe a few others, actually. And this one is definitely the weirdest. Viridiana, which made a recent top five. I've seen some Buñuel films. This one is the densest, as you put it. There's yes. just a lot. You, that there's I've a seen. lot of ideological ping pong going on. Yeah. You know, references to politics. I, I mean, I feel like I need a refresher course on the European political climate of the late 60s and early 70s to to really appreciate this film. And you don't if know I the history of the that, country, Miranda? <laughs> if I had that, perhaps... It would have made it into the top five. Very glad I saw it. Happy to cross it off the blind spotting list. And I think we'll probably have to revisit in some more in-depth fashion at some point. Yeah, I, I agree with you on all counts. I will single out a couple moments I particularly enjoyed, though. And the basic setup of this film, the conceit, if you will, is that you've got this group of bourgeois men and women, three men, three women, and they are basically corrupt politicians and different people in power. And they keep trying to meet for dinner. And somehow their dinner keeps being thwarted in increasingly bizarre and absurd and unrealistic ways. And then actually, at some point, the movie stops being really about their search for food and becomes about people sharing their dreams. Mm-hmm. This being a Buñuel film. But the notion that these bourgeois Leaders and officials are so corrupt and guilty that when they go over to their host's house for dinner and they're engaging in some hijinks upstairs, the couple is trying to get it on up in the bedroom. And then they realize that, oh, they'll be too loud and their guests will hear them. So they actually go outside behind the gardener's shed to do it. And they take a little bit of time. So their guests are just stuck inside wondering what's going on. They're so corrupt and so just naturally guilty, whether they feel that guilt or not, that they assume that their absence means that the police have come Mm -hmm. or someone has sold them out and any minute they're going to be arrested. And so they leave. And then the couple finally comes back in, the host, and they wonder, 
what happened to their guests. Later, too, that same couple, they have a meeting with their bishop, their local bishop. Slash gardener. Slash gardener. He decides, <laughs> I love that touch. He comes over in his garments, decides, hey, they need a gardener. I love gardening. He goes and dresses himself up as a gardener. He comes into the house and says, hi, I'm your bishop, and starts talking to them as a bishop would. And they're so offended, and they're so sure that there's no way this man who looks like a gardener could be their bishop, that they kick him out. But when he comes back in three minutes later, same person, nothing really different about him, except he's now wearing, wearing the, the garb. appropriate garb. Yeah. They're like, oh, we're so sorry. Of course you're the bishop. It's, it's that simple. It's all about appearances, and it's really about nothing more. And so there are those very funny, satirical moments that... Buñuel really is a master. And I like how he joins their party for the rest of the film. He's invited along on these dinners, exactly. but they still treat him like their servant or like their gardener, you know? Right. So, so there's the class thing at play too. And also a couple of very haunting, very creepy in these dream sequences, mm-hmm. um, ghost yeah. figures yep. uh, that I didn't expect as well. So yeah, a ton going on here. Okay. We'll see how much is going on with our actual top five. Discreet Charm also did not quite make the cut, but that also speaks to the fact that 1972 was a pretty good year. And not only is this a tie-in with Elaine May, but as longtime listeners know, we've been doing these year-by-year countdowns, starting with the year that film spotting started the year before, 2004, and going back through the decades. And we've hit the rest of the 2000s. We've hit almost every year in the 90s, maybe except for one or two. And we're making our way through the 80s. I didn't know that we were necessarily going to get into the 70s as 1972 is before we were even born. And even though obviously we've seen some of these films, you could argue not really in our wheelhouse, but there were enough good films that we had both seen from this year that it seemed like a good tie in with the Heartbreak Kit. So before we actually get to our picks, The Godfather, Mm -hmm. obviously 1972 in the film spotting pantheon would be my number one choice. We've set that one aside. Any other films off the top? You want to list as regrets some films that you really were hoping to see but couldn't fit in? So I was only comfortable doing this list because the sure things that I had seen and knew were great are really great. Yeah, and we'll too. get to those. That's yeah. why we have a joint we have, list. Yeah. But that isn't to say that there are not a ton of films I still need to see from this year. And at the top of the list, also on my blind spotting letterbox list is Deliverance. I just mm. could not get to that in time after getting to Discreet Charm. So I still need to see that. The Getaway, I really wanted to watch as well. Don't know if it would have cracked the top five, but one I'd always wanted to see. Cabaret, I know you really like. Mm-hmm. Still need to see that. And then really intrigued by Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah. The Robert Redford wilderness drama that uh, I'd like to check out. So well, there's a bunch of other titles too. It's, I'm not comprehensive on 72, but I'm pretty confident on the films that I have seen. Well, with all of your misguided love for The Revenant, you should surely oh, love right Jeremiah Johnson based on what I know about that Robert Redford film. That one was my number one regret. Haven't seen Jeremiah Johnson. Number two, Deliverance. And I have seen most of Deliverance. It's just one of those movies like in college, it would be on. I'd see parts of it, but never sat from start to finish. Really do need to see that. The Way of the Dragon, Bruce Lee. Fat City, a John Huston-directed movie starring Stacey Keach and Jeff Bridges as kind of washed-up boxers. Across 110th Street, a movie that we considered for our Black Sportation Marathon. And Eat the Document, which is a follow-up to D.A. Pennybaker's documentary on Bob Dylan, Don't Look Back. It's available on YouTube, otherwise pretty hard to see. I think it's only about 53 minutes long, so that's one I'm certainly going to see at some point as I love Don't Look Back. Now that we've given you all the reasons in the world to not give any credit to our top five, Let's actually share our top five picks. Josh, what do you have at number five? 
I'm going to go with the film that you referenced at the very beginning. I have Igmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers covered mm. here in at number five. Now, Mary and Edith, the uh, sisters of Downton Abbey, Adam, uh-huh. I don't want to spoil anything for you, but they got into... <laughs> quite a row this week on the show. Over Bergman? No, not quite. But it did remind me (laughs) of Cries and Whispers. Cries and Whispers is set in the late 1800s. It's about two sisters who have returned to the family mansion to sit at the deathbed of another sister. Now, obviously, there's a more nuanced dynamic going on here, given that it is Bergman. But Cries and Whispers, it's really very much a soap opera, at least begins that way. And it mines these three lifetimes worth of jealousy, spite, and regret. But Yes, being Bergman, it takes a turn towards psychological horror. As it mm-hmm. goes on, I would say you've got the screen periodically fading to red and and those frantic whispers that are on the soundtrack just gets a little more insane as it goes on. And also, you know, no tidy narrative closure to this one, no. which, which I, I'm really hoping Downton gives me. So I'm not left hanging. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will. I love that you found the discreet charm inscrutable, but somehow Cries and Whispers makes your top five. That one was easy. <laughs> you can tell me what that one's all about. That movie, Cries and Whispers, number seven for me okay. on my list of films of 1972. That's how good this list is. My top five picks here, Josh, and we do share three of them. We'll get to those in a moment. But all five of my choices actually come from film spotting marathons over the years. And number five, maybe it's because I have Hitchcock on the brain after seeing Vertigo last night at the Music Box in 70 millimeter. took my daughter, Sophie. She doing okay? She's doing okay. We had a long talk on the way home. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> really just mostly about plot stuff. Mm. But we did have a long talk on the way home. Not the talk. Not the talk. It didn't prompt no. the talk. No, her mother gets to have <laughs> that talk with her. I'm going with Hitchcock's penultimate film, Frenzy. It stars John Finch as a divorced bartender, just lost his job, and the police think he is a serial killer. And of course, this being Hitchcock, he is the wrong man. One of the things that's most fascinating about seeing this Hitchcock film, this late period Hitchcock film, is how brutal it is. The filmmaker who gave us Psycho with the shower scene and so much is left to our imagination. This movie gives us a rape and murder scene that sets the whole plot in motion that based on other Hitchcock films is pretty shocking. He lets the scene play out. He doesn't leave much at all to the imagination. And right away, you recognize that this isn't the same Hitchcock. He's not working within the confines of Hollywood. This film was made in London. And it's similar to Vertigo, too, looking back at my notes from our marathon, and that you know the answer to the mystery before anyone else in the story does. The drama isn't about finding out who the killer is. It's watching that wrong man kind of unravel under the weight of the psychological terror. And I know I've talked about on a top five list before the great tracking shot in this movie where the camera just pulls back slowly down the steps of a flat where the killer is about to kill someone. We know what's going to happen in there. And in contrast to those scenes earlier in the film where nothing is left to the imagination, Hitchcock says, I'm not going to show you this one. We all know what's really happening. And Ebert, in his review, he gave Frenzy four stars when it came out. He said, the shot is not for a moment a gimmick. The melancholy of the withdrawing camera movement is one of the most touching effects in the film, despite the fact that no people inhabit it. And he's dead on. Imagine that, Hitchcock using the camera to great effect. Probably... In high schools, when I saw Frenzy as part of WGN, used to do Hitchcock marathons they would have. And uh, so it's been a while for me. Would have had to revisit that to put it on this list. What I do have at number four, I enjoyed The Heartbreak Kid so much, I put it here. Really? At number four. Yeah, it was just uh, such a good time. And we spent 
a good amount of time talking about it, so I won't say much more. Maybe a little bit about Grodin's performance that we didn't get to is the faux sincerity he adopts when he's starting to lead Lila on. Mm -hmm. He whips that up. I mean, he just overdoes it to a level of hysteria, and the bits that really get me are the invented army buddy friend. Oh, yeah. What's his name? His name, Wilmer McCready. He's a big redneck jerk when it comes to having a conversation, but he's a hell of a handy guy to have around if you're going to need somebody to save your life. He's a big beer drinker. I almost didn't even recognize him. He's got a, he put on a, must have put on about 30 pounds already. He's got a little charter fishing boat business done. Married. Three kids. Why, why, why can't the wives come? But to an army reunion? Honey, are you kidding? You know what the language would get like in an army reunion? This is a, this is a, a, a very rough guy. He's always got a toothpick in his mouth. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how do you even? What I sort don't. of mind makes up know. that right. level that, that, of that detail? That toothpick is synonymous with he's a hillbilly to <laughs> well, him. Well, right. That's what right. he's trying to express. But yeah. he's painting this full character for right. her too. Uh, it's it's just so great and. You know, she at one point when he's leaving to go meet this buddy again, she says something to him. Uh, Jeannie Berlin, again, in that great performance, you won't forget about me as she's left there with the sunburn in the hotel right. room. And the real sad irony of all of this is that it, he's making all of her cloying fears come true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 that that middle tension between them that the movie gets so right is she starts out worrying about this and his behavior makes it come true. Yeah. So, yeah, really wonderful film, The Heartbreak Kid. If, if people aren't convinced yet to watch it, one more play to do that. My number four is one of your regrets. And we go from our Hitchcock marathon many, many years ago here on the show to our musicals marathon and the film Cabaret from Bob Fosse. Big fan of Fosse, all that jazz, one of my favorite films. This, of course, is the movie starring Eliza Minnelli, Michael York, and Joel Grey. It's set back in the Weimar Republic, Berlin, 1931. The Nazi party is just growing, really, and coming into power. And the film is very much about that kind of freedom and the juxtaposition against that loss of freedom that we know is going to be coming, whether the characters in the film know or not. It's loosely based on the musical by Kander Neb, and that was adapted from the novel by Christopher Isherwood in 1939. Go back to the Oscars of 1972. Joel Gray, wonderful, wonderful performance. Beat out Pacino, James Caan, and Robert Duvall for Best Supporting Actor Mm. from The Godfather. And of course, famously, The Godfather did win Best Picture, Cabaret was nominated, but Fosse beat out Coppola for Best Director. And I love Cabaret. I really do. It's my number four for a reason. But that's probably one of those baffling Oscar wins we could go back and assess. One of the things I remember from our musicals marathon is being struck by this film in particular as one that works completely as a story separate from the music. Hmm. And maybe that doesn't sound like praise for a musical. The music's amazing. The dancing's amazing. The singing is amazing. But the narrative itself is also so good and so tight that you could, I think, take all of that out of it and it would still be quite compelling just as a traditional story. And Fosse does a wonderful job of showing us a lot and not telling us a lot. He's not really, as a filmmaker, someone who is into moralizing. And there's a sequence I'm sure I've brought up since our original review of Cabaret here on the show that I will always carry with me from Cabaret. It's the Tomorrow Belongs to Me sequence where... They're out in the German countryside and everyone's kind of just enjoying a beer. And then this young man 
with a Nazi armband gets up and he starts singing this hymn, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, this very patriotic song. And everybody instantly starts paying attention and they get caught up in it. Fosse there, he's showing you that moment and he's showing you these moments in the Kit Kat Club, these more debaucherous moments where people are escaping. They're in really tough times. And what do you do in really tough times? Well, you can get lost in places like the Kit Kat Club or you can get caught up in the fervor of patriotism and trying to make your country great again, right? And getting swept up in all of that. That's definitely one I need to get to yet. So that brings us to our top three. And what we did discover forming this list is we agreed that there were three films among these great films of 1972 that stood out as preeminent. And so the way we're going to tackle is we ranked them differently. No real surprise there. I don't think we actually even share a slot. Any I think order? we have all three of, of them not. ranked differently. So that works. We're going to go in alphabetical order. And the first one, which is actually my number one, I think you had it at number three, Herzog's Agira, The Wrath of God, part of our Herzog-Kinski Marathon back in 2006. We called those awards here on the show our best fiends. And Fitzcarraldo actually won my best picture award. Agira, The Wrath of God was a close second. Having seen Agira more recently, it was part of my Roger Ebert class a few summers ago at the University of Chicago's Graham School. I would probably revise that now and give my best picture to Agira. It's a masterpiece, and it's a film that's shot in Peru, this 16th century doomed journey of conquistadors led by Kinski, or he ends up being the leader, and they are in search of the lost city of gold, El Dorado, which, of course, is a mythical city, and they do not come across that, and in the process, they go a little bit crazy, and they mutiny, and they deal with all sorts of other problems. When I did watch it again and discuss it in my class, I wrote this about it on Letterboxd. My two biggest takeaways this time, besides recognizing just how much Francis Ford Coppola did steal from it for Apocalypse Now, is that Agira, the Kinski character, is actually arguably the sanest, most practical member of the crew of Conquistadors because he doesn't lose his mind, Josh, so much as he just, the minute he gets there, he embraces the chaos of the jungle. He says, this is my kind of environment. And actually, he acts in a more rational way, as crazy as he is. For much of the film, he acts more rationally than all the other men who don't know what to do. He's a perfect fit in this environment and the brand of delusion that he can embrace within the jungle. Kinski as well, the other thing I took away is that he is not this howling madman that he often is in Herzog's films. He's actually pretty subtle in comparison to the character he's playing on paper and the character I remember in my head from the first time I saw it. I think he's still charismatic and he's commanding and he's scary. And Herzog amplifies that with these low angle close ups. But not only did I think about all that when I saw it again, for me, I just gave it five stars right away saying 
it's ridiculous that Herzog, with his third feature film, gave us one of the best openings in movie history and one of the best closing scenes in cinema history. But he did. Well, Kinski is he's a challenging and demanding presence in that movie that makes him stand apart. And yeah. the challenge, I feel, is being thrown right back at Herzog. For I mean, sure. You can, you can sense that tension between them. And it's also in contrast with the real power for me in this film is when you can sense the insane risks they're taking as filmmakers, sort of impinging on the narrative, right? Totally. And so you've got these actors on this crude log raft hurtling down the water and they look scared to yeah. death because they probably are scared to right. death. And they're they're clinging there. You can imagine them just waiting for Herzog to call cut. Not that that would really save them, but, no. but maybe in their lives. But who's not waiting? Like, who's saying, bring it on, give me more, is right. Kinski. And so I, I just love that dynamic and how palpable it is in the movie. To that point, I found a great quote from Jay Hoberman writing in 2006 about the movie. He said, landscape is paramount. Animals lend their behavioral presence. The camera is exceptionally mobile, even as the action is shot mid stream on wooden rafts. Each bend in the river compels the spectator to consider how this movie was actually made. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the underlying themes of watching any Herzog film. That's partly what makes it so thrilling. Fitzcarraldo, another film where that's certainly the case as they pull an actual ship, an actual boat over a mountain. But that's there in every shot of Aguirre, the Wrath of God. We should probably point listeners to the next picture show episode where they paired Agira with The The Revenant Revenant. as well, uh, because I think Hardy is very much channeling Kinski Mm -hmm. there. And as you described him, this guy who's in a sense, practical and logical. Yeah. He's, he's he sort is. of he's that the most rational in there. The Revenant as well. And even touches like the water when they're going down the river, splashing onto the camera lens. Here, it brings the filmmaking into the movie in the way that, you know, heightens it for me. I know that was something you didn't like so much yeah. in The Revenant, but mm-hmm. definitely in Yaritu is lifting that technique sure. as well, where we're going to get bear drool on this lens to really make you feel like you're there. Yeah, we'll definitely link over to the next picture show if you're not already subscribed to that podcast, but we encourage you to do so, and you can also find it in iTunes. That brings us to our top two picks here, Josh, and again, we're going in alphabetical order, but I think this was your number one. So that brings us to Solaris, right? And yeah, yeah, that is, you know, it would be tough for me. I'd almost have to watch them the same day to decide if I really think The Godfather is better than Solaris, because this is just a masterwork. And I did see it again last year at the Music Box Theater. So on a big screen, pretty fresh. And I was, as I was the first time I saw it, just, it left me stunned. It's sort of the anti- the Martian, there's nothing practical here or sciencey about it. It's not it. about process really at all. No, this, this is deep think science fiction. I mean, the story itself, and it essentially follows this psychologist who's sent to investigate these mysterious messages that are coming from a space station that's observing the tidal planet. The story is just a setup uh, to plumb these questions of identity, I think it's looking totally. into, death, existence. Yeah. Grief, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. suicide is this recurring motif in the film and also memories of lost loved ones and how those memories keep coming back. So directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, which means that the movie is going to do all this ruminating, mostly through hypnotic and provocative visuals and also references to other artworks is something he does. So there's that lengthy car trip at the start. Mm -hmm. Still on Earth, it's going through this concrete 
tunnel it feels in so Russia. foreign right it, it's like yeah. it's almost like his version of the wormhole in 2001 yeah. or like interstellar you know but but he puts it here on earth and of course we get the full screen images of solaris the planet itself which is this it's like a roiling misty ocean that um you know they suspect might be a sentient being actually one of my top five movie locations i wish i could visit and you are insane for picking that. <laughs> well, we all have our reasons. No one really wants to go there, Adam. How about the moment where the camera just moves in for this extended sequence, pondering the details of this painting by Bruegel the Elder, the hunters in the snow? I mm. mean, the movie just gives itself over to that for yeah. a couple minutes on end. So, you know, ultimately, I think this um, it's one of those movies that could be about everything, right? It's so curious and expansive. Uh, at heart, I kind of feel that it's about the human yearning for understanding and then the wall we hit, how there, there's there's a limit to that. So I love this movie. And in fact, it's my number two, though, on any given day, I'd flip the coin. I'd still put The Godfather ahead of it. I just have a deeper emotional attachment to that movie. But it would actually be a bigger battle between Agira and Solaris. I think they're both masterpieces and both on much different scales, certainly, and dealing in different thematic concerns and different genres, certainly. But Solaris was part of an early film spotting marathon called Overlooked Auteurs, Overlooked by Us. We watched Solaris and also Andre Rublev, and then we did our awards at the end, which we called the Andes for Andrew Saris, the, of course, champion of the auteur theory. Solaris was hands down my best picture then, and... Coming off watching Vertigo, I saw this quote from Ebert that I just had to share because I think it's so appropriate to what Hitchcock is doing in Vertigo as well. He wrote about Solaris, when we love someone, who do we love, that person or our idea of that person? And certainly that is a very dominant theme in Solaris, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by it. And to everything you were saying about the way it's told and the language that Tarkovsky uses, Bergman said he's the greatest. He basically invented a new cinematic language, true to the nature of film as it captures life as a reflection, life as a dream. Vertigo has some of that as well, actually, and they're both masterpieces. So great pick there with Solaris. That brings us to our final choice, my number three and your number two, which is Superfly. And we did share this as our best picture pick when we did our black exploitation marathon. That was in the fall of 2012. Given this movie's reputation as this slick crime flick, I was surprised by the political bite and the emotional nuance that it had. I knew that other black exploitation films had those elements, but for some reason I just didn't associate them with Superfly, whether it was the title or the mm-hmm. poster art or whatever. Um, but man, was this thing rich. It does follow Ron O'Neill as this flashy drug dealer, but it's really mostly about the dead-end despair of ghetto life, uh, how there's this, you know, the false independence of a criminal enterprise, which this guy's involved in, is really just another form of enslavement. And we talked about how this can be felt even in the Curtis Mayfield composed soundtrack, especially the song Pusher Man. It's got that, you know, a really invigorating bass line that makes it a great listen, but then the falsetto lament that includes that line, there's no happiness. There's a 
bravura moment in this movie that's that stunning sequence of still photographs and they were taken by the director gordon parks jr and they trace this movement of cocaine it goes from you know the procurement of it to its packaging to its sale and how that takes place both in the ghetto and then among these upper class white clients who are really a significant part of the Mm o'neill character's client base so really expansive portrait of um this sort of experience and uh which is ultimately what one of the characters calls it a rotten game. Mm. It's certainly one of the best soundtracks in film history. Uh And everything you said about all the different elements at play, it's an entertaining film in the way a lot of black exploitation films are. There are a lot of the cool elements that we saw with Shaft, but there's also this great social commentary at play where we watch this character who is trying to break away from the environment that surrounds him, trying to get off the streets if he can do it. And that sequence you mentioned, the Pusher Man cocaine sequence, we'll link to it in our show notes if you want to check it out. If you're not familiar with it, still photos. I'll give you credit, Josh. That was one that when I saw it for the first time, I loved it because I loved the song. But I actually wrote in my notes that it felt a little bit like filler to me. Hmm. And it really was only after you talked about it that I went back and watched it and realized just how adeptly it tells the whole story of a transaction and kind of gives you everything in a different platform using photographs and music together on film to show us something that the movie at that point hadn't done. It's really pretty stunning. Yeah, I I think it, it struck me as almost like the entire movie traffic, but done in just a few minutes. Yeah. Those are our top five films of 1972. If the rankings matter to you and you didn't follow our inverted math there and our order you can find our actual rankings at filmspotting.net just click on top fives josh what about some other films that you did see not regrets but they didn't make your top five yeah how about last tango in paris i mean that is a movie that i appreciate i think i probably appreciate pauline kale's um instant reaction loving review of it even more and i also considered the candidate i'm a Mm -hmm. fan of that robert redford film i think i finally saw it in preparation believe it or not for the will ferrell political comedy the campaign which i also recommend yeah i didn't actually see that one unfortunately my number 10 i ranked these which i never do with honorable mentions but as i was trying to refine my top five it just made sense to me i had buñuel's the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie just ahead of woody allen's everything you ever wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask my number nine was one of the ones you still need to see the getaway which was part of our classic heist movie marathon here on film spotting that film from sam peckinpah number eight the last tango in paris number seven your number five cries and whispers from bergman and i had at number six the candidate that robert redford film directed by michael ritchie we want to know your picks or any other comments about the show you can send them to us at feedback at filmspotting.net you can also leave the show a voicemail like the great ones we heard in this episode you can do that at 312-264-0744 you can also find film spotting on facebook and on twitter at Film Spotting is Adam. At Larson on Film is me. Out in limited release, opening here in Chicago this weekend, Stephen Cohn's Henry Gamble's birthday party. You've heard Stephen Cohn as a guest on the show before. I've praised some of his films. Last week, I know Michael and Tasha recommended this film. I recommend it as well. And I've seen it. I would say it's definitely worth seeing. It's almost like The Graduate, mm-hmm. done by Robert Altman. <laughs> right. But but set amidst a mega church. Yeah. I don't know if that's that's you know setting too high a bar for what Stephen's doing here, yeah. but but those are definitely some of the influences no, that you can you're, detect. You're absolutely right. And a quick note: 
another movie that is out currently in limited release. It opened in Chicago last weekend, but a war. We got a tweet from a listener named Dakota Arsenault who said, Adam, for the last two weeks, you have said a war is a documentary. It's actually a Danish best foreign film nominee. And you're right. I don't know why, because if you would ask me, is a war a documentary? I know it's from director Tobias Lindholm, who made the movie A Hijacking, and yet somehow I had it in my head that this war movie was a documentary when I've referenced it before. Wanted to correct that and mention that it is out now. Out in wide release, Eddie the Eagle, the story of England's first ski jumper to enter the Winter Olympics, Hugh Jackman and Christopher Walken star, Gods of Egypt from director Alex Proyas, Gerard Butler, because yes, John Oliver, when I think of Egyptian characters, I certainly think of a Scotsman like Gerard Butler. Why do I, why do I feel Gerard Butler is like trapped in some green screen studio and they never let him out? No. They just keep no. forcing him to make these And movies. he's wearing sandals yeah. and his pecs are showing the whole time. <laughs> Triple Nine, a police and thieves thriller directed by John Hillcoat, who gave us The Road and The Proposition, Casey Affleck, Kate Winslet, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Woody Harrelson, great cast in that. We're curious about that one. And Crouching Tiger, Sword of Destiny, out on IMAX. And via Netflix, that sequel to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is right now the movie we're planning to discuss. And our top five is to be decided, though we've zeroed in on a couple topics that connect with Sword of Destiny. One of them will not be top five martial arts films because we simply are not equipped to do that top five. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. You heard music this week from the musical Hamilton. More information is at hamiltonbroadway.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.